0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to episode 4 from the Dungeons & Dweeds podcast of continuing to get some content out while we try to figure out our plans going forward here. This is episode 4 of 3 and 3, where least favorite fourth chair, Neil, which is me, and as reference for people who don't understand that, that comes from one time, uh, Luke, who's normally our second chair. He read up on one of the podcasts that Paul was everyone's favorite fourth chair, so I have taken over the title of least favorite fourth chair then. So, a bit of fun at Luke's expense, but I'm sure he enjoys it some days more than others. Now, I took a little break off of recording during this holiday season before recording this fourth episode here, but we are continuing the Sort of True series by Terry Goodkind. And reminder, the reason why I did this is in 2020, for those of you who are listening to it later uh uh, mr goodkind ended up passing away so i decided to do this because they are a series of books that i really enjoyed throughout my childhood slash teenage years in high school and going back and reading through them again you find out there are some really nice things and some that aren't so great so today we have book four temple of the winds bringing three good and three not as good things And again these are all just my opinions and spoilers for what is about to happen on the various topics that are covered here today now with that being said i'm giving a bonus like here whereas in the last one blood of the fold i gave a bonus dislike my bonus like is that the cover artist keith parkinson returned and it made more sense looking at how he draws the characters compared to how the other one was kind of more photoshopped almost of more realistic characters so I was really happy to see him return, at least for this one, and I believe the next two. And then sadly, uh, Keith Parkinson had also passed away before he was able to complete, or before Goodkind was able to complete the whole series and have the artwork done in that style. So without further ado, here we have the first of the good things that I really enjoyed about this book. And the first one is, in the previous books, I have really complained a lot about how the Power that Richard has being a war wizard is almost too much of plot convenience because it's based on need and desire, and it's always, oh, Richard's in trouble, and now all of a sudden, oh, look, because he's a war wizard, he has that power, and he has now gone ahead and saved the day. Perfect, convenient magic ability, but Richard doesn't really know how to use it. During this book, and it hits a little too close on 2020, there is a plague that is going on and as part of the way to stop this plague richard has to journey to the temple of the winds which is in the underworld and he is able to stop the plague entirely and as he's in the temple of the winds he ends up actually getting the knowledge of how his full war wizard powers work and he starts to use this um or he starts being able to do all these fantastic things he shows no sign of having troubles he's able to just create destroy, subtract, and add different sorts of things without a thought, and it's not based on needs because he knows his abilities now. But this would make for a very boring continuation of the novels as, K okay, Richard's unlocked his full ability. Now we can do whatever he wants, essentially. Instead, as Richard has to escape the Temple of the Winds to try to go and save the lives of the people he loves, he has to give up the ability of knowing everything, and he also ends up taking this whole plague among himself or into himself. So this was a nice way that Goodkind did it where he set up that, okay, here is what Richard could do, but now it had to be taken away because otherwise things would be way too simple for him to solve the issues on. So I really like that of showing the potential, but then showing why that potential is still not there. Now, flipping to the not so good side, and this one ties in when we'll get to about book seven. And it is called the Rawl Siblings. And they're not really siblings so much as the, uh, you know what? I'm not going to sword slash my swearing out here, unlike previous episodes. So I'll just say the illegitimate children, make it a little nicer, of Dark and Rawl. In this book, we find out that Richard has an illegitimate brother. His name is Rawl, and he has been kept away from um, this are from Tahara because of his mom ran away after she'd been raped by Dark and, Roll, and he was raised by this group of healers. And what we find out here is that he is an ungifted child of Dark And, and despite this, though, he's able to do some rather interesting things as Darkenral has been able to talk to him from beyond in the underworld. He's he is actually the villain here in this one well one of them and he's more of a tertiary antagonist during this one but he is the one who is kind of leading these plot points along and he's able to do all these miraculous things and he's able to stop different magic abilities from happening because at one point um ends up trying to use her confessor's power on him and He's able to manipulate the ley lines, essentially, of his body and counteract it from stopping. And he's able to use these different ley lines of ability and these healer arts, if you as I'm going to describe them, and use them to stop various things from happening, almost like an actual magical ability of how he does it. But we later find out in Book 7, there's a little more specific term for these ungifted children of Dark and Rawl. And this one kind of, it goes against it with what happens in book seven, and it's almost like there needed to be a retcon of what happens, but it just doesn't fit the flow of what happens with the later book. Now, when I first read this one, before I got to book seven, I enjoyed how um, Drefenrol was set up. But with the later book of seven, looking back on it now, it kind of messes with how I view this. So in my mind, that is a negative because of how a previous book set it up. Back to one of the good things. Now, in this book, there is a plague, like I mentioned, and the plague is brought about by Jigang and the Imperial Order. Now, one of the reasons why he, or how this plague is started, is there is a box that has the plague in it, and Jigang has a Sister of Dark release it on a child. Now, I know what you're thinking right there. How is this a good thing? Well, one, it's establishing the depths that this villain will go to to try to prove his main point. Now, Jang did this because when, uh, so he's a dreamwalker, sorry, going back to that. So he can enter people's minds and see what they see. And at one point when he was in uh, the Midlands, he saw that Richard had kind of made a modified version of a game that was popular in the old world. And that game is basically called the game of life. And, what Richard did was made this game easier for more people to play. What happened was, in the original game that's in the old world, there's the Brock is B-R-O-C, is a really heavy ball, so it takes the people of the greatest strength to be able to play this game. When Richard got back to New World, he made a smaller, lighter one, so it became more of a skilled player game. And also, you know, you could still use the strength in that, but now it's more um, focused towards the skill side. Well, gang didn't like this because... The Game of Life is supposed to be the strongest survive, and that is it. If you're not strong, you're going to die. So what he did is he released this plague on the children who'd been playing the game for the first time. And this was his way of getting revenge for Richard, doing this to the game that he loves so much. And I won't spoil it now, but later on when we get to one of the later books, there's some really fun moments with the Game of Life here. And they are probably one of my favorite things of the story, even though, admittedly, they don't make as much sense. Um, or they don't, uh, I'm trying to think of how I want to phrase it here. They work for what the story is doing, but realistically they should not have happened is my best description. But anyway, it, this idea of the big bad being willing to use children to start something terrible for his enemy really sets him up of being a character that you will hate throughout the whole story. And I like that way of setting this up now back to The next two not so good things. And reminder, I go one good, one bad, one good, two bad, and then finish with the one good one. Now, the next bad one here, as I was trying to go through here after reading through and writing down some of my notes, the one thing that I don't, there are so many different storylines that go on here. We have Richard and Kaylin, we have Zed and Anne, then we have the Sisters of Light, the Prelate, uh, Verna now, and Nathan. And Really, the Sisters Light and Nathan story, it was important, but it didn't feel like it was actually that important to the plot. It felt very lacking in this one. Um, Really, not much happens to them. We have Verna trying to save as many sisters as she can. Nathan has escaped from being a prophet. Warren is now becoming a prophet, and then he needs Nathan to help him out. Nathan helps him out. Nathan is in love with a woman. But then she dies already in the one book and he gets mad at Verna about these things. And the story just felt really lacking for this side story. And it really kind of made me sad because of, in the previous books, especially book two with Stone of Tears, how strong those characters were written of Nathan, Verna, and Warren. In this book, it was just really lacking. And that is one of the things that um, I've kind of noticed that Goodkind has some issues with. He does really good with Richard Kalen Zed. But when he goes to other side characters, they really kind of struggle with what they are doing. And it's almost like he was just trying to get in more words and pages at times. Now, I know that there are going to be people who disagree with me there, and I at times disagree with myself depending on the different novels. But in this one, it didn't seem as strong of a story for that particular side mission, essentially, of the characters. The third and final not-so-good thing here is in my notes I have written as anti-magic. Now, when we have Richard, who is the uh, Lord Lordral, he's the head of Dahara, he is the magic against the magic. And the reason why he's the magic against the magic is he has magic ability. And what I kind of see this is, think of any type of wizardry type sort of thing you always have someone and then you have their enemy and they always kind of counter each other here have a counter spell no i'll counter this with what my ability is and excuse me for a second there and this is pretty common with anything that has a magical element where you have the good and the bad and the opposite of each other and then you have the other people who have no magical ability and they rely on others to protect them but in this we start to keep getting more and more people who have ways around magic we have Drefin, uh, Drefin Raul, who is able to manipulate his ley lines essentially and that sort of thing. And we later find out other types of Raul children being called pristinely ungifted. We have different collars that the Sisters of Light use on wizards that restrain magic ability. So that's stopping more people. And then Zed and Anne, they get captured at one point and they get these. Uh, anti-magic bracelets essentially put around their wrists, and that stops their ability, even though Zed has already proven that he's able to find a way out of magic collars when he had one of the Radahans put around his neck by the Sisters of Light. He can easily take it on and off, but he can't get this bracelet off. And I get what he was going for, and I and he, I mean, uh, what Goodkind was going for, is that even if they're not magically gifted, they should still have a way to defend themselves but it kind of, for me, minimizes the ability of these magical people in the world because now, okay, if anyone can find a way around it, what actually does make them so special in this world? And truth be told, it's not a huge thing here, but as it sets later things up of how so many different people have all these counters, it does bother me a little bit of what happened here. And third and final, the other good and i guess it's really not a good a good part per se of the story but it is a beautiful scene to me and that is why it made it to number three on my good list now sorry in the last podcast i talked about how when richard has the mord Sith protectors he has Beridine and she is a lesbian and she has her lover who's another one reina and richard is okay with their relationship he's like well you're my friend i don't like carrots or peas are how we use the example, and you do. That doesn't make you any less, and that was his argument for it. But during this, um, Reyna actually ends up catching the plague, and we have this beautiful scene here where she wants to go out and see the chipmunks again. Now, one thing about the Mord Sith, and I haven't explained it during this, they are the warrior women, the Amazon uh, almost equivalent, and they are sworn to just protect the Lord Raul at all times. They don't like any, they really don't like humor and that sort of things. They're always very serious, trying to protect all things. But Richard has now been trying to humanize them a bit because of all the things that were done to them to make them this way. And he has humanized them enough, at each one in different ways, first of all. there, And one of the things he's done with Reyna is that he's got it so that she is willing to be more with wildlife and that sort of thing, trying to care for things, and she starts to care for these different chipmunks that they've gone out to feed. And she enjoys having them feed out of her hand. And when she's now dying at this point from the plague, she asks for one last thing, and that's to be taken out by Richard to the gardens so that she can feed the chipmunks one last time, showing that even though she's had all these terrible things done to her, she still is was starting to regain those bits of humanity where there were good things in life that were set up for. And I thought that was really nice of how they set, or that scene was, I thought that scene was very well written, showing what she cared about now, and that she wasn't just set up to be this merciless killer like the Mord had been shown in book one. Now, those were my three. Uh, three good things and three not-so-good things. And again, some are of higher Uh, levels on like intensity of that sort of thing but each person's mileage will vary if you have any comments that you'd like to maybe even counteract some of the things i said here hey please give us a comment on our facebook page i'll try to get the next one out in a week or so as we go on to book five soul of the fire and as a quick note that is the first one in the series I read because it was the only one our library had. So it has sentimental value because it was the first. But there are many things that did not so do so well on that one. So a little preview for you there. Otherwise, please make sure you all have a good day and stay safe out there, okay? Thanks.